All right. Sorry, everyone, for the trouble.、Uh, seems that every week something doesn't work as it's supposed to. But、um, thank you for your patience and for being with us today. I hope you're all staying well、um, in mind, body, and soul. And I hope you've been keeping warm. It's been so cold. It's super cold right now. I'm, I've got like a blanket under under、uh, over my legs because it's so cold,、um, even in our house. And、um, if we put the heater on, then like the, the sound quality is very bad. So. We are suffering in the cold for you, so that you can hear us.、Um, it's, you know, I don't even know how many weeks it's been since we've been doing this, but、um, you know, I know that our patience is running thin. Everyone is 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 wanting to get out of the house, but、um, I pray that in the few more or several more weeks that we have, that we can make the most of it and find things that we can be grateful for. Last week, I shared about Richard Warmbrand, a Romanian pastor who had an extraordinary story and who endured 14 years of imprisonment and torture.、Um, and we talked about how, despite that, he came out loving God and loving others and even loving his enemies. He and his wife Sabina、um, are inspiring proof that love is stronger than hate. And today we're doing part two of prison writings, and today I want to look at the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and who was he, and what was his impact. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born on、uh, February fourth, nineteen o six, in Breslau. He grew up mostly in、uh, Berlin, however, and his father was a noted physician. Dietrich Bonhoeffer went on to complete his Doctor of Theology degree from the University of Berlin at the age of 21, graduating in 1927, summa cum laude. He was too young to be ordained, and so he went to the U.S. for a teaching fellowship. And there he met Frank Fisher, an African American seminarian, who introduced him to a church in Harlem. And there, amongst the African American members, Dietrich Bonhoeffer realizes that. Christianity is not just a set of mental beliefs, but it's a way of life. He saw these members who, you know, faced incredible injustice and suffering, and yet had so much vision and passion, and were sharing their their troubles and their joys and their temptations and their testimonies and and singing and praising and worshiping God. And week by week, as he spent time with them, he he really、uh, came to the conviction that Christianity Christianity has to be.、Um, A submission to the will of God in every area of your life, and not just a theory. And so, this experience really、um, impacted Bonhoeffer's、um, life and ministry and experience, as we shall see. He returned to Germany,、um, and finally, on the fifteenth of November, nineteen thirty-one, at the age of twenty-five, he was ordained as a church minister. Now, on the thirtieth of January, nineteen thirty-three, Nazi、um, regime came into power in Germany. And、uh, very much like Richard Rumbrandt,、um, Bonhoeffer w- was w- very against what was happening, and so then he、um, delivered a lecture over the public radio in which he denounced Adolf Hitler and warned the German public against following this leader. And of course, they cut the program before he could finish. In the spring of 1935, he was called to take charge of an illegal underground seminary in Finkenwald, where he shared an emergency bill house with 25 vicars. And this experience led to one of his most famous books called *Life Together*,、um, which we'll be talking about today. And then、um, after that, of course.、Um, The German regime shut down this underground seminary, with, and they arrested the pastors and the former students. And then, around this time, Bonhoeffer wrote his most famous book called *The Cost of Discipleship*, which is quite、uh, a good read. 
Now, for a few years, he continued to travel around,、uh, kind of secretly from one German village to another, mentoring his former students and continuing, you know, his 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 work.、Um, but he was always on the run, right? Because they were always trying to arrest him. In 1936, he returned to the U.S. for a bit of time, but then he he felt really conflicted. He regretted his decision. He felt like he had betrayed his people, and he wrote this letter to his former theology professor and his mentor、uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. And he wrote, "I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people." Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization might survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. So he returned to Germany and joined a resistance movement,、um, helping Jews escape to Switzerland and also trying to get Allied support against Hitler. He even signed up with the German secret service and worked as a double agent、um, in order to try to continue his works. And he was even part of a group that was plotting to assassinate Hitler. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not just a pacifist that, pacifist that sat. Remember his conviction that Christianity is something that has to be lived out in every area of your life and has to be an act of obedience. It cannot just be a mental belief. And so he was very active in,、um, you know, working, working as as much as he could to save people and to try to stop、uh, the Nazi regime, regime from continuing.、Um, and of course, finally, on April fifth, nineteen forty three, Bonhoeffer, his sister and brother in law、uh, were arrested, and they were incarcerated at first at a military prison, but later in concentration camps,、uh, where he finally ended up in the concentration camp at Flossenburg. Finally, on April ninth, nineteen forty-five, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. And not every follower of God gets a happy ending. You know, we saw last week with Richard Rembrandt. Despite fourteen years of torture, he survived until the age of, I want to say, ninety or so. But here with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we see、um, that sadly he was、um, he was killed just a few weeks before Liberation Day. Even though some of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer did and said were controversial, his impact is undeniable. And I want to look today at、um, something he said in his book *Life Together* that、um, talks about solitude and、uh, community. One of his most famous quotes from his book *Life Together* says, "Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Such people will only do harm to themselves and to the community." Alone, you stood before God when God called you. Alone, you had to obey God's voice. Alone, you had to take up your cross, struggle, and pray. And alone, you will die and give an account to God. You cannot avoid yourself, for it is precisely God who has singled you out. If you do not want to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you, and you can have no part in the community of those who are called. But the reverse is also true. Whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. You are called into the community of faith. The call was not meant for you alone. You carry your cross, you struggle, and you pray in the community of faith, the community of those who are called. You are not alone even when you die, and on the day of judgment, you will be only one member of the great community of faith of Jesus Christ. If you neglect the community of other Christians, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus you being alone can only become harmful for you. In other words, he's saying every follower of God is called to be both in solitude as well as in community. 
He says, "Beware of just doing one or the other, because God actually calls us to do both. And if we're only doing one, then we're not actually fulfilling God's call for our lives." You know, Jesus Himself went between the multitude and the mountain, and notice this pattern here. Mark chapter one. Verses thirty-two to thirty-five. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Mark chapter six verses thirty to thirty-two, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, "Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest." So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And one more, Mark chapter six verses forty-four to forty-six, the number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So you see, over and over again, Jesus balances both the solitude and the multitude. After spending time with the crowds, he makes sure that he goes away to a solitary place to pray by himself. And sometimes he would he would say, "Come with me to the disciples," and they would withdraw together to rest and to pray. If Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, right, who was divine,、um, needed that time of multitude and multitude, that time of solitude and community, then how can we, as human beings, who have so many?、Um, Temptations and who face so many challenges with, without having that close connection with God. How can we think that we can navigate life without going between the two? And yet, the truth is that many of us find one more challenging than the other. You know, I for, for my, myself, I'm an, an extrovert, and so I find solitude challenging. I don't like、um, the silence. I love being alone. Right, being alone is great. When when the when the kids are finally in bed and I finally have some me time, I love it. So that's not what I'm talking about here when I say solitude. Solitude is not just alone time. Solitude that that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Bible is talking about,、um, and when when the psalmist rose early in the morning and and when Jesus went to the to the mountainside, the solitude that they were seeking is a quiet time, where you voluntarily enter into listening. Where you voluntarily enter into a time and space where you can listen to the voice of truth, and allow that time to then address the thoughts and the feelings and the issues that have been in your mind and heart all day, but you haven't had a chance to address it. Like I said, it's that solitude that I find challenging because I don't like silence.、Um, when I'm home alone, you know, I'll put something on so I can have some music in the background or some kind of noise because I find it difficult to be in quiet by myself. In 2014, Timothy D. Wilson and his team had 11 studies where they were trying to see、um, if people could spend five to 15 minutes in a room by themselves with nothing to, with nothing to do but to think. And it's crazy, but in this experiment, many people preferred to administer painful electric shocks to themselves instead of being left alone with their thoughts. So, in other words, the experiment. Went like this. They say, "Hey, here, you know, you have to be in this room for five to fifteen minutes by yourself, 
doing nothing. And they said, you know, by the way, here's a button um, and we're going to show you what it does and how it feels. And they would, they would show them and it would hurt and they would say, ow, okay, don't do that again. And they would, and he, they would say, yep, we're leaving it alone. Um, just be in the room alone for a bit. And it was amazing. What they found is that people hated being alone with nothing to do. And after a while, even though they hated the pain, they would press the button just to have something to do so that they're not alone with their thoughts. It's interesting because the study found that a quarter of the women and two-thirds of the men, so more of the men, gave themselves an electric shock rather than be alone with their thoughts. One particular outlier pressed the button 190 times in 15 minutes. So that's a bit extreme, isn't it? I don't think I would be quite that bad. But yeah, I struggle with being in silence alone with my thoughts. What about you? When's the last time you actually, you know, went for a walk without headphones on, right? When's the last time you went to the bathroom without your phone? And when's the last time that you just put everything on silent, right? Put the devices away and just actually listened and sat there in silence. The famous philosopher Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from men's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And whether you agree with him or not, studies have shown that the ability to sit in solitude and spend time in thoughtful reflection and listening have significant positive effects on your mental, emotional, spiritual, and even physical well-being. And and this doesn't necessarily have to um, mean that you sit silent and do nothing. You could be in silence and write, right? Journaling is one of the ways that the NASA astronauts stay sane in that solitude, in that um, in that isolation. Jack Fong, who's a, psycho- a sociologist who has studied solitude, he wrote, when people take these moments to explore their solitude, not only will they be forced to confront who they are, they just might learn a little bit about how to outmaneuver some of the toxicity that surrounds them in a social setting. In other words, once we are removed from our social context, it's a great opportunity to see how we're actually shaped by that context. Right. And then once we're outside of that, we can identify, oh, actually, that was really toxic to me. Right. That was actually uh, impacting my decisions. And it gives you an opportunity to say, okay, how can I strategize um, going back into that space, but limiting that impact on me? I think this is why, you know, um, in America or in other places where, where children leave home, right, at the age of 18 or however old they are, and they're able to step outside of their family circumstance. And then finally they realize, oh, that shaped me in this way or that way. And, and this is actually who I want to become. And so that coming of age and, and changing into your own identity comes from stepping outside of that context. Thomas Merton, who, um, is a monk, uh, and a writer who spent years alone, he wrote, we cannot see things in perspective until we cease to hug them to our bosom. And that new perspective that we get may be quite confronting at first, and it might be very uncomfortable. But as we accept the truth, the truth will set us free. In a 2003 study by Christopher Long and James Avril, they explore the benefits of solitude. They discover that individuals who regularly engage in solitude, right, um, whether it's journaling, thinking, reflecting, meditating, that they report greater freedom of choice, that they recognize, oh, I actually want to make this choice, not because I'm compelled to by my circumstances, but I choose to make this choice. They found they had greater creativity, 
intimacy in their relationships, spirituality, decreased feelings of loneliness, and an increased sense of well-being. And they also showed that um, as you practice solitude, you actually develop more compassion for others in that time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, There is a wonderful power of clarification, purification, and concentration upon the, upon the essential things in being quiet. And so perhaps during this social isolation, we can find some time, you know, we might be isolated, but maybe we're not actually in solitude. And, and maybe we can take some time this week to be in solitude, to really clarify our thoughts, to concentrate on, on listening to the voice of truth. Now, what about community? You know, for, for others of us, it's not solitude that's challenging, it's community. How can we choose community? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, it's easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken away from us any day, that the time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let those who until now have had the privilege of living a Christian life together with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their hearts. Let them thank God on their knees and realize it is grace, nothing but grace that we are still permitted to live in the community of Christians today. You know, during this pandemic, one thing that I really miss is our church community, being able to come together to talk and laugh and sing and, and pray and, you know, just to share life together. And I hope that you also during this time uh, realize that church community is a gift, that it is the grace of God that we can have it because some people never have it, whether because they're sick and so they stay home or whether because they live in countries where um, Christianity is persecuted so they cannot come together or maybe there aren't any Christians around them where they live and so they have no church to, to attend and so they're all alone. And so I really hope we realize how blessed we are to have a church community. Even though we can't meet physically together, that we have the technology to be able to come together um, once in a while. It's not only a privilege to be part of a church community, but it's an essential fulfillment of God's call for our lives. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, you know, the Ephesus was a city that was multicultural. And so the church was a multicultural place with people from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile uh, backgrounds and all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. And this is what Paul said to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and onwards. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, the church is a place where there is a diversity of people because God calls all people from all nations, right? All backgrounds and all ages and all personalities. And the promise of God is that through Christ, we become one. So we're no longer strangers, but we're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We're fellow members of God's family. And we're, we're building blocks of God's temple where God's spirit dwells and the world can see who he is through us. And this kind of cooperation and fellowship and unity doesn't come from human effort alone. It really is a gift from God. It really takes focusing, choosing to focus on Christ, 
right? As individuals letting Jesus be the center of the community that allows us to become one. You know, Paul calls this kind of community a mystery. He says this is a plan of the mystery. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. A plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might not be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? When I first read this, I had to kind of do a double check take because we usually think of the church being the community that lets, lets the other non-believers in the world know that God is real, right? We often say that when we love one another, others will know that we are his disciples. So we always think of the church as the witness for the earth. But here Paul says that the church has the power to be a witness for the rulers in heaven, right? That the church community becoming one together and centered around Christ is so amazing. It's such a miracle that it actually is a witness of God's power to those in heaven. So how do we become one? How does the community gel together? And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Rather, this is verse 15 now, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, the kind of unity and fellowship that a community, a church community can have depends on how willing we are to give up our egos and to focus on Christ, right? How much we're willing to, to put that intentionality beyond um, following God's will in every aspect of our lives so that as we love people that we're not naturally drawn to, right? As we get to know them, that we recognize that that person is a child of God and we recognize God's unique gifts to that person and we value them for who they are. And as we build that relationship, God transforms us. And it's not all hard work and challenges, right? Christian fellowship is so encouraging. It's so inspiring. I would not be who I am today without all of you influencing me and molding me and helping me become who I am today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians, in the mouths of human beings. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. In other words, we need each other because God's character, God's image is reflected in each one of us. And as each one of us shares God's word to each other and encouraging each other, right? Praying for each other, supporting each other, we are able to get a fuller picture of God. 
and it's okay if the church is messy, you know. Um, God, God does not expect the church to be perfect. Just like he doesn't expect us to be perfect from the get-go, right? He knows that it's a, it's a journey of a lifetime. He knows that there's a, a process of people getting to know each other, rubbing each other the wrong way, forgiving each other, growing closer. There's a storming and then a forming and, and a bonding experience that happens with people. I'm sure you're experiencing that with the people who are living in your home right now, right? It, it, there's a tension. And as you resolve that tension and forgive each other, you grow closer together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, community, church community is not an ideal that we have to realize, but rather it's a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. So if you want you know, our church community to, to be more cohesive and you want us to be more Christ-centered and you want us to be more loving, pray for our church. Participate in it. Be a part of the process, right? Remember Ephesians, it says, each, as each member does his or her own part, as each of us does our part, then the body becomes one. Then the building is complete. Have you ever been to the Redwood Forest near Warburton? It's a stunning place. And we were supposed to go there for our church retreat, and hopefully we can go there together as a church community one day. These California redwood trees were planted by the Victorian Board of Works in 1930, and the trees range from 20 to 55 meters tall. Now, being in this place, uh, you know, I was truly amazed, and I thought, oh, I can't wait to, to one day go to California and see the really old trees, because these have been around for, what, 80 years? But the ones in California have been around for over a 1,000 years. At the Redwood National Park in California, the world's tallest living tree is over 115 meters tall and is around 1,200 years old. Now, you would think that such tall trees would have deep roots to keep them um, from toppling over, but these redwood tree roots are quite shallow, only about one to two meters deep. And if you look at this picture, these roots, instead of going down deep, they make up for it by going wide. So they extend up to 30 meters from the trunk and they, they intertwine and fuse together, making a thick grove. And this gives them the tremendous strength then to withstand the high winds. And so there's an illustration for us that as Christians, you know, we need our, our roots. We need our alone time with God. We need our solitude, but we also need that community, that support to withstand the storms of life. And, you know, you don't have to be a social butterfly to enjoy church community and to participate and, and, and help grow it. You just have to be present, you know, to, to be there and say, I'm here for you. How are you? So this week, I want to challenge you um, to just choose one person from church that you can call this week to just say hello and uh, to be there and to say, how's it going? Um, and just get to know them a little bit better. And maybe if you're too shy to even give them a call, send them a message, do something nice for them. So just your challenge is just encourage one person, get to know one person from church this week. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the second challenge is this. I want to invite you this week to set time in your schedule for one 
at least one session of solitude to really focus on the voice of truth, to actively listen and engage your heart um, in listening to God and asking him the questions, what's really driving my motivation, right? What's really behind my actions and my goals? What's really at the core of my anxiety and my fears? Who or what am I really living for? And who is God calling me to be? What is God calling me to do? And so write it down um, if you find that easier to do. Pray out loud if, if you find that's easier to do. But really allow that time of solitude to heal and refocus your mind and heart and soul to um, the person that God is calling you to be. This is one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors, Ellen White. And she wrote this in the book Education. She said, many in their seasons of devotion fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press to the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with a divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. These workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of His Spirit. Receiving this, they will be quickened by fresh life. The wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in His presence, but personal contact with Christ. To sit down in companionship with Him, this is our need. Happy will it be for the children of our homes and the students of our schools when parents and teachers shall learn in their own lives the precious experience pictured in these words from the Song of Songs. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, excuse me, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. The original word for I sat down, right, at his, under his shadow with great delight, that word is not just saying I sat down once, but the original Hebrew word says it's a continual, repeated, lingering, returning again and again to delight and enjoy God's presence. So I really pray and hope that this week, as you spend that time in solitude, you can experience that delight in just lingering in God's presence, listening to the voice of truth. And I pray that after you have had that real communion with God, that you can experience the power of community with each other. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you speak to us, not always in a loud thundering voice, but sometimes in that still small voice. So help us to quiet the noises in our lives, to turn everything off, to make time to really sit in silence and reflect and listen to your voice. And I pray that from that place of conviction, from that place of healing and clarity, that we would be able to be filled with your love so that we can then go out into the community that you have called us to be, to encourage one another, to be Christ-centered in our community. And I pray for our church, Lord. I pray for Melbourne City Adventist Church, that you would help us to really focus on you and that as each of us does our part, that our church can be a place where you're lifted up, where your image shines for all the world to see so that people can learn to know how good you are. Father, God, during this pandemic, as we are continuing in social distancing, um, some of us are really struggling, Lord, whether it's finding that 
time for solitude or whether it's finding that time for, for community through online. Father, help us during this challenging time to still be able to do both and help us, Lord, to look forward to the day when we can be together again and help us to do our part in helping your kingdom come. We pray in your son's name. Amen.